Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day, for this season, for your good news, for your church that calls us in and sends us out to serve you. And we thank you for your word that claims us and that transforms us. Silence in us now any voice but your own, that by the hearing of your word, we might serve you with joy, for Christ's sake. Amen. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew, beginning at the 25th verse of the 6th chapter. Let us hear God's word. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some years ago, more than I probably like to think, when I was a seminary student, I did an 18-month internship between my second and final years at seminary at a small urban church in downtown Indianapolis. The church is now closed. I don't know if I contributed to that or not, but I can tell you that that internship was a tremendous experience for me. The church had an extensive neighborhood presence, tutoring and food and jobs, a strong community presence, economic development, and I learned a lot. One day I was sitting in my office and the phone rang. It was the local television station. Now, some of you might remember a time when television stations signed off the air at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning, long before the advent of 24-hour cable and overnight infomercials about pillows or endless reruns of Law and Order. TV stations signed off, usually with a playing of the national anthem and a flag blowing beautifully in some wheat field somewhere. 
This station took it one step further. Before the playing of that national anthem, they had a local minister, and it was always a minister, offer a three-minute reflection, a kind of mini-sermon. My hunch is that those days that the station signs off are long past, and the practice of mini-sermons offered by local Christian ministers faded many years ago. But nonetheless, back then, I got the call. Would I prepare five three-minute reflections and come down to the station to record them? Well, sure, I said. And it wasn't exactly hard work, but coming up with five kind of cogent ideas and boiling it down to three minutes and making it presentable for television was its own kind of challenge. But I did it. I got to the station. The recording went well enough. And then it was done, and I actually kind of forgot I had done it, except every so often someone would come up to me and say they told, saw me on television. Why were you up so late, was my typical <laughs> reply. Now what I remember most about that experience has nothing to do with me, and everything to do with another minister who was there at the same time with me, who recorded his five three-minute segments at the same time I did. I think he had a different preparation experience in that I don't think he prepared at all. He just started talking, and when the timer that we were looking at hit two minutes and 45 seconds, he knew it was time to wind things down. And had I not been 24 years old and incredibly nervous, I might have done the same thing. Now, my hunch is that few of these three-minute mini-sermons are memorable, his or mine or anyone else's, but I remember one of his distinctly. He said at least a million times, or five or six anyway, in that three-minute time period, you need to have an attitude of gratitude. An attitude of gratitude. I remember it clearly all these years later, an attitude of gratitude, and he's... He's right, of course, but what does that mean? Well, it's a rare Sunday after Thanksgiving that's not also the first Sunday of Advent, and it gives us an opportunity not only to think about this most extraordinary of holidays, Thanksgiving, but also all of the impulses behind it. Now, first let me offer a couple of stipulations. Let us stipulate that we have work to do in our understanding of thanksgiving in a world of white privilege and historical interpretation. And let us also stipulate that what this holiday has often become, a day for eating and football, both of which I enjoyed, often allows us to miss the larger themes, both of those stipulated. But that word, thanksgiving, and its national implications, and at a deeper level, a core bedrock principle of our faith. What does it mean to live with an attitude of gratitude and not turn it into a hollow or trivial platitude? The prophet Joel, from which Pam just read, tells the earth first 
and then the animals, and then all people, all creation, to rejoice and give thanks to God, who provides all that is needed. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. What does that look like for us? To understand God as provider and not ourselves or our hard work or our deserving. And then Jesus meddles even more than that. Jesus tells his followers not to worry about what they will eat or what they will drink or the clothing they will wear. If God makes the grass grow and the beautiful lilies bloom, if God gives food even for the birds that fly around in the air, then what have we to worry about? I wonder what that would look like for us to not worry, to trust God, not ourselves. We're in a year of stories, and happily so. Perhaps a subsection of this year would be a season of gratitude stories. What would yours be, as Becky has suggested? Large or small, family or fuzzy slippers or anything in between, smaller ones and personal ones, larger ones and communal ones. Gratitude is good for us. John Tierney famously published a column in the New York Times a few years back which begins with the declaration that Thanksgiving is the most psychologically correct holiday. Tierney writes that feelings of gratitude have been linked to better health, sounder sleep, less anxiety and depression, higher long-term satisfaction with life, and kinder behavior toward others. Who would have thought? Well, we would have thought. Because our faith tradition knows that. Rod Rosenblatt writes, the church is the place where we get in touch with divine generosity and therefore gratitude on a weekly basis. Gratitude, Rosenblatt writes, revives the spirit and inspires works of love. Now there are moments when I worry that our culture has turned gratitude itself into a kind of commodity. Website after website and book after book encourage us to keep gratitude journals. Now writing things down for which we're thankful is a good idea. Absolutely it is, and I try to do it especially in those moments when I'm feeling a little less than fully grateful. And yet David Zoll writes that tips on how to be more grateful seem to ignore how so much of the power of gratitude lies in it being a response, something that by definition is not terribly receptive to leverage or exertion or suggestion. And I also worry that we misunderstand gratitude. Zoll writes, don't confuse gratitude with indebtedness. Sure, you may feel obliged to return a favor, but that's not gratitude. Indebtedness is more of a negative feeling and doesn't yield the same benefits as gratitude, which inclines you to be nice to anyone, not just a benefactor. Our mistake, Diana Butler-Bass says, is in making gratitude transactional. 
It is a response, she writes, not a requirement. And Bass reminds us that gratitude is not about debt and duty, about reciprocity, but about abundance and sharing with no expectation of return. Sometimes I worry that we trivialize gratitude or that we embrace the notion that if we were just more grateful, the bad things won't have the impact they do, which feels trivial to me. Molly Marshall writes that being grateful is a powerful guiding force for managing even the hardest aspects of being human. And I believe that. I believe that we are able to be grateful in the midst of hardship and challenge, not to make that disappear, but to allow us to persevere. So let's think about this for a moment. Think about what having an attitude of gratitude might look like. Consider those words, not at a trivial transactional level, but at a deep level of the core bedrock of our faith. And then ask ourselves these questions. For what are we grateful, little and big? And then let's make a list, not as a duty, but as a response. And then ask ourselves where gratitude is lacking in our lives. And how are the other forces of our lives or our culture or our experiencing pushing it away? And then let's ask the ethical question, the moral question, what a communal sense of gratitude would look like, whether, whether it's in our families or in our church or in our city or in our world, how would that make a difference? And how can we, who have received so much, model gratitude for a world hungry for transformation? And we will sing about harvest several times today in the great Thanksgiving hymns. It's probably a word we think not so much about, but think about it today. How do we receive all that God has given us, whether food or clothing or shelter or friendship or opportunity or experience or gift? And how can we think about harvest more faithfully? Presbyterians get nervous in the face of silence, but I'm going to try it anyway. So let's take a moment to sit in silence and without coercion or a sense of transaction or reciprocity, ponder these things. And then ask yourself about the moments and the people and the experiences for which you are grateful and thankful for just a moment. Think about those as you leave this place today. Remind yourself that Thanksgiving is not a one-day holiday, but a lifetime and a lifestyle and a commitment of our faith. Share what you were thinking about or who you were thinking about with those around you or with those you encounter the rest of this day. That, I think, at a deep fundamental level, is what an attitude of gratitude might look like that then transforms itself into a life of gratitude. 
James Martin is a really wonderful current Jesuit priest who's writing a great deal on lots of topics that interest me. I'd invite us to hear a brief thanksgiving prayer that he has just shared with his readers. Thank you, God. I'm grateful, God, for so many things. Now, I know I'm not the most grateful person you know, God, so let me take some time to tell you what I'm thankful for. I'm grateful, God, for the gift of life. Without you, I wouldn't be here. Without you, nothing would be here. Without you, nothing would be at all. And then Martin does what we've just done. He recounts a litany of particular things in his life for which he is grateful. It's a good practice. And then he concludes with these words. Most of all, God, I'm grateful for your presence in my life. You're everywhere. And if I remember to pay attention, I can see your invitation to meet you in every moment of the day. I know that it is you who turns my mind to thoughts of gratitude. And when I'm tempted to focus only on the problems and worries and fears, I know that I'm being led away from you. No, I'm not always as thankful as I should be, but today I am. Today I will try to be grateful all day, since you are generous all day to me, like you are every day. Amen.